netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Hi, and welcome to this special FX podcast coming to you from the drive back from Vegas. As we've done the last few years, and certainly from a couple of trade shows now, uh, we often drive back from a trade show and discuss all the things that we saw that were of interest. And one year we said, hey, maybe you guys would like to join us in the car as we uh, drive back. It's a long drive, gives us a chance to reflect. And uh, and that's what we do. So we thought, hey, why don't you guys join us for that conversation? Obviously, this is part of the normal FX podcast, which is the podcast where we discuss the tech, the the issues, and some of the principles and stuff stuff that's going on behind the scenes and in um, releases, films, and TV shows, as opposed to our RC podcast, which is our podcast on digital cinematography. The DOD, which is uh, really a behind-the-scenes look at what's happening at FX PhD, um, or as part of our FX Guide TV general uh, coverage. So we have uh, three or four podcasts. Um, but this one, the FX podcast, this is always one that I really look forward to, where I get to uh, sit and chat about the stuff that happens. So we are, have just left Vegas, but we have not left Nevada. Nevada, And I'm being uh, chauffeured by my good friend, Jeff Huser. Jeff, how are you, sir? Driving, podcasting, all at the same time. Three hours, 30 minutes to Los Angeles. Okay, so we're definitely going to have this podcast under three hours and 30 minutes. Um, and uh, behind me in the back seat, uh, two other good friends, uh, starting with uh, John. How are you? I'm a bit hungover, I have to say. This is got a Don't Don't start. Sorry. Inside joke. And uh, guest spotting uh, over cross-promoting from the RC, Jason Wingrath. How are you, Left Rear Channel. Hello, Jason Left Rear Channel, yes. So we were thinking, we put this out in quadraphonic or, or not? Um, okay, if so not, what, If you're not hearing this in quadraphonic, check, check your system. <laughs> so uh, what we're going to do is discuss the things that we liked at the show. And, of course, we had the entire Tuesday doing the live show. So some of the things we'll discuss, we'll overlap with a little bit. We're going to try and focus on things that we didn't cover on the live show and also stuff we saw uh, on the Wednesday. So, uh, Jeff, did you have a good NAB overall? It was spectacular. I mean, Tuesday was the six-hour, six-plus-hour live show. Um, it was pretty spectacular, and um, we should mention, I guess, if people don't know about that, that we'll have those videos up. It's up there now. You can watch the whole three and a half, six and a half hour stream, but we're going to break it up into little sections uh, next week and uh, or soon, and they might be up already by the time this is up, and that way you'll be able to find the section on speed grade or whatever the topic was, which will be really nice for people. I, I had a great show. It was a lot of, it was a lot of fun. Um, got, didn't get as much time on the show floors as normal because of the six hours doing the, show, the live show, but it was worth it. We had a lot of guests come by. We, we still got a lot of information. You did an outstanding job directing that. Um, many of oh. you wouldn't have seen Jeff, of course, because he was actually running the show, whereas uh, John and I were uh, sort of uh, out the front a lot more. But, of course, uh, you, know, you did a spectacular job. And, John, did you, John, find any uh, kind of theme this year? Wake up, John. It's your, it's, your, it's your bit. What's up? I said, I was just telling John to wake up. I nodded off. Oh. So, Mike, you're questioning it. I'm sorry, John. I was just saying, <laughs> did you see any theme this year? That uh, sometimes we see, you know, like I think a year ago it was, we were saying it was stereo everywhere, and the year before that, um, you know, there was, there was a, something that you might say, okay, everyone was talking about, say, uh, 4K or whatever it is. Um, but did you notice a theme this year? No, I didn't actually necessarily notice a theme uh, this year. Um, but I, I thought it was a healthy NAB, I felt. Uh, it was, uh, seems like things and companies are, are doing well, good software releases from a variety of vendors, 
um, some new hardware as well. Um, you know, just going back a couple of years, it seemed like there was this kind of pall that was cast over NAB with stuff because of the GFC, uh, but it seems to have come out of that at this point. Uh, and I think it's kind of back on track. Though, interestingly enough, a lot of the software things that get announced or used to be announced at NAB they kind of are announced ahead of time or you learn about ahead of time. Um, much more so than actually event, announcing them at the actual NAB show. So things like, you know, you knew there was a new version of Mocha because that was announced a couple weeks ago. Uh, the production premium was actually announced uh, the week before as well, the new CS6 version. So, but of course, the big one was Smoke on Mac. Uh, that was a big announcement at NAB, probably the biggest single individual announcement in our community. Absolutely, and we're going to discuss that in excruciating detail, as you mentioned we might. Um, and Jason, from a centre hall perspective, because you tended to obviously hit the camera production stuff much more, given that you're a director, yeah. um, did you, you know, think it was a good show? Um, oh yeah, it was. The, I think, well, as you say, it was really knackering. <laughs> Seems like it, it did way, way more walking, and uh, I was just completely, completely tired, and, and but a, a good tired. I was trying to think of what the hell the theme was this year either. I really, I think if anything, maybe it's the fact that Jesus stuff's getting cheap. You're getting, we're getting so much more bang for our buck. Huh. Yeah. You know, it's, we're seeing 4K everywhere. Um, the Blackmagic camera, which we'll talk about, it was just an incredible example of that. You guys saw changes in software pricing, like smoke and stuff coming down. It's just. I think they're all sort of seem to be happily following this black magic model of uh, give us something better, give us something new every year, and make it cheaper. Well, why, why don't we start? Sorry, Jeff. Go ahead. Oh no, I was just going to say I want to get back to the smoke on Mac thing, but well, I want to. But that's exactly what I was going to say. Is I was going to do a quick rat hole though along that same line um, because it affects it all. Is you know a couple months before NAB, the Canon announced the 5D Mark III, and of course we all ordered because it helped our production so much more by having more record time. And that was one of the main factors we chose for that camera. But I think Jason's point about things getting cheaper, faster, lighter, uh, all that stuff. That. I mean, what we've really learned in just a short four days of shooting is that camera, that camera, and the higher ISOs cameras in general is really changing gear you have to take pack, and I mean, mm. all this stuff is evolving in a very interesting way. And just in five years, that six years, whatever it is, when we started doing this, you know. Things have gotten so much lighter and so much cheaper. I absolutely could, yeah. I mean, the thing is, we were, and we'll talk about this later, I'm sure, we bought some lights at the show and some other stuff, and I was completely reevaluating what light levels I thought was a sensible light level having shot. And what ASA um, is a yeah. you can get away with. And look, we, we obviously had uh, epics and other things going on, and we're not just right, Canon, right, right, but, right. but having being said, all four of us have uh, Canon 5D Mark III's. But let's let's discuss Smoke on Mac, and we'll swing back yeah, on yeah, the yeah. other. Um, and, uh, John, I mean, you kind of knew about this a little, Smoke on Mac, I guess probably more than us, but, you know, do you think that uh, Autodesk did a good job launching it? I think they did. Um, I think they're, they needed to do something. I'm looking at the original Smoke on Mac release almost as a beta to kind of see what happens when you make uh, a product like that and it designed the way it's designed accessible to a wider audience. And it, it seems like they took a lot of feedback from that because it, uh, I know from FXPHD when we had Smoke on the VPN, uh, it was really difficult to configure and set up. And, and frankly, when they shipped Smoke on Mac, they didn't even have support for DHCP, so dynamic IP addresses. 
So if you log, you know, logged into Network One Place with your MacBook Pro, and then logged in another place, your frame store would be lost because different IP addresses would have problems starting up. And they seem to have addressed a lot of that uh, from an infrastructure standpoint over the years. And now the main thing really in the Smoke on Mac release is a new UI and, and a new way of kind of doing things within the software that I really believe is far more approachable and will be more approachable to the wider masses, though not the extreme wide masses. You know, this is priced still above the cost of the former Final Cut Studio. It's priced above, uh, I assume, the new version of CS6. I can believe CS6 would increase that much in a year. Um, so yeah, I think it's a, you know certainly a new entry for them into that market and wider wider audience. What was the price? It's about three and a half. Yeah, three and a half. Three and a half. Thousand dollars. Wow. So, not not talking about the price now, but Jason, you're a huge critic of the Final Cut X move. Well, let's not beat around the bush here. Like you just hate it. Yeah. Um, doesn't exist. Which causes you to need to move to something. So, I guess what the two options, or maybe three options for you, would be what Avid, Premiere, and possibly Smoke on Mac. I don't know. Is that? Well, that was interesting. I was really keen to have have a play with it because I saw it from afar and I thought it was Premiere until I stepped closer and someone said it was Smoke. So I was really keen to uh, get the uh, you know good lowdown on it from you guys who I know you went and had some you know checked it out in detail because the whole timeline section for those that don't know much about it it looks like um, it's moved somewhat away from what was like the nodal kind of proper visual effects kind of compositing tool to have a, a more of a simple layering sort of as you might just drop 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 clips on top of each other in a stat like an NLE timeline type thing. It looks very much like it all, it looks exactly like Premiere from a, from a distance. Yeah, what do you think, Jeff? Yeah, I, I took a look at the interface and you know they did a lot of things like, you know, one of the banes of one of the good things they added in Flame over the years was wiretap for uh, you know for accessing clips that were not native to Linux like ProRes files and things like that. Um, and but the interface for all that and the way you dealt with that has always been really clunky. So this now you can literally drag and drop files into the system. Although when I went by for a demo, the guy couldn't get that to work. But but it's sure more it just, works. But, but it's more than just drag and dropping into the system, right? Oh yeah. Because you used to have the edit desk. There'd be the source reel right. and the and the record reel and the record desk, and you'd have sort of clips sitting around in a kind of a unstructured not yeah. yeah exactly at different sizes. By that I mean icon sizes. And yeah. now it's really like Final Cut in the sense you've got a folder system that you can have on the top left, and in those folders, you know, you're pulling out clips and dropping them into the timeline just the way you did in kind of Final Cut. Yeah. I, I think, um, but but Jason, to get back to, would you think that, I mean, if you know, would, would Smoke be something you could possibly use, or do you think you'd be really going to Premiere? I presume not Avid, though. Possibly, right? Because obviously your editors would. Well, uh, I mean, I've. Looked over the shoulder of a lot of people doing smoke, uh, the old smoke, and um, you know it does my head in, you know from from a distance. But I guess the question would be, is the 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 compositing part of it, the part that you are paying the extra, you know, a couple of thousand dollars above whatever what the other alternatives, is that going to be such a steep learning curve for people who have come from, like like say Premiere or have come from what they might be used to compositing with, with say, Final Cut uh, FCP7. I would say, that the, I don't it, know if you'd agree with this, John, but I'd say if you were coming from Final Cut, you'd find it really easy, and then you'd say the compositing tools are awesome. But if you're coming from Premiere, you're used to having After Effects and 
quite frankly, if you're not used to After Effects, After Effects is an easiest thing to learn. But if you are used to After Effects, then After Effects and Premiere, the, the question there is, you know, is it better to have one package with them both combined? Or, John, do you think it's easy just to move between Premiere and After Effects these days and it's a non-issue? No, actually, I think that my, my thing with um, the Adobe Suite is, it was always kind of in my mind was that they would get the integration to be better between After Effects and Premiere. So it was like you were leaving, staying within the application because of how much I liked working in Flame. This idea of working with a consistent tool set, consistent UI, without leaving and working another application with a different paradigm um, is still something that is not really, they talk about dynamic link in Premiere and After Effects, but they're really still very different. And the ability to just sit and smoke, do your great in the timeline. If you need to do complex effects, you can jump into action to do them, of course, which is just brilliant if you think about it. On the surface, yes. it really appeals. It sounds, yeah. I hate the idea conceptually of just jumping to another app and coming back because it never... The, the practice is never really as good as the theory. Yeah. Everyone sort of, you know, says it's oh, it's just pop, it's easy, you know, to round trip, but you know, the reality of it is never, it's, never the same. Yeah, and, and until you've actually experienced it and worked that way, and had your eyes open to working that way, um, I can see how you might not think it's that important of a thing. But mm. once you start having that, where you in an application do everything you want, Whoa. it's really brilliant. It's something that. You know, I've wanted to see it for a long time in other applications as well. So the back end of the smoke, the sort of more compositing side of that, isn't is we don't think has been has been designed enough so that it's actually going to be not so no, steep a curve, it's or doesn't rely on the fact that you know the old version of smoke. It's you the same. Go, the compositing part is the same as before. There, the changes they've made have basically been in the UI and the timeline, the simple or trimmer mode. So there is some interactivity. Uh, differences, but I, I do think action will, is going to be complicated for anyone who hasn't used action before, well, honestly, because it is very different. I guess it, yeah, it would, it's also marvelous. It is marvelous, yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. Right. it can interact the way Final Cut, you know, of old or, or Avid does in terms of being able to, you know, get stuff in and, and out and get files out to, you know, for audio mixing and, you know, be, be work in terms of import and export like uh, like the old Final Cut or everyone do then then cool it's worth it's worth checking out it would be great if there was a demo you know, before you go and spend three and a half weren't they well they're actually about in, that? you're going to be able to take part in the free public beta in June I believe when they when they throw it out there before they yeah. ship later in the year with my guess just not knowing anything would be IBC time frame seems like they announce a lot of stuff at IBC but it could be different because it's aiming for a different market they, you know, just as a run you know what I mean? It was really funny. They had the uh, director from the new film, Gravity, which isn't out yet, at the uh, launch. And uh, he did Children of Men, right? So, awesome right. director. Love Children of Men. Really, really terrific. I completely would like to interview him about Gravity when it's done. Just going to point out that he himself tends to not know how to use a computer. Um, and, and certainly can't edit though he can edit in terms of having he has an he was up nominated for an Oscar for editing, but what I mean by not edit it means he can't actually operate the gear. So understands film right. language, just doesn't understand kit. Right. It just seemed funny having a guy who admitted on stage that he has to get his assistant to help him send emails to be the person that you would bring in to launch a new uh, product because he clearly A doesn't use it and B, if push came to shove, probably couldn't use it. 
He's a nice guy, though. Yeah, they were, I think they were trying to do the whole thing that Scorsese did, right, at the Canon event, or very much or similar to that, where they have someone talk about making those tools more accessible to everyone. Yeah. But I think he did a better... I think the Canon event was a better tie-in than this one. Yeah, I, I chuckled at that as well, Mike. Scorsese would probably have just as much of a struggle as operating a C300 as... Uh... But, yeah, they did it. I just, you know, it was a nicer tie at the Canon event, right? Yeah. At least in my opinion. Yeah. Apart from which, Scorsese didn't actually stand up and say, I don't know how to use this camera. <laughs> if ever I knew a camera, I have exactly. to say to somebody... Some things are better left unsaid. Yeah. Saying? I mean, if he just not said that... Because yeah. obviously... Gravity is going to be one of the biggest effects films with heaps of tech, don't get me wrong, but, and there were amazing shots uh, from a post-production point of view in Children of Men. It's just, he's just yes. funny setting up on the stage. I'm like, okay, so why are you here? Um, yes. And the main reason was just, you know, it was like... So on Smoke, I, I, I guess the question for me is, is this new way of importing files and everything that looks pretty much like every other net. It's like every other computer application in the world now where you can actually just look at your files and bring them in, which is very different from before we have this wiretap gateway, you have these services running in the background, you've got all this other stuff. I'm kind of curious, is that stuff still there and they're just hiding it? And so they basically made a wrapper on all that complex stuff under the hood uh, that might potentially break uh, when you run the software, or they've really re-architectured that. Because that's actually one of the biggest problems they had, I think, in rolling it out. Uh, that was people were hitting the wall on that, not even being able to get footage in. Oh, Which absolutely. is a little, a minor. Yeah. A little minor. Yeah. No, the, yeah. So, and then, and as I pointed out, the batch, the feature set of this, if you're curious, there's really nothing feature-wise that, and by that I mean creative tools, accessibility, additions, subtractions that are different from Smoke on Man now. You know, it's not like they have a rework to, you know, everything or withdrawn features or added features per se. Um, you know, they haven't added full batch. They just have connect effects, which is, you know, effectively batch effects. So from a tool standpoint, it is relatively the same piece of software. They've just made it much easier to use, hopefully. There was a lively discussion on Flame News, of course, when this, uh, the mailing list, when this uh, news broke of the price and the normal, you know, People fear change, panic, price drop, everybody, all the jobs are going to go away because they're going to start pricing the jobs based on the kit. And so I, I, it seemed like a healthy discussion, but there was a lot of... Yeah, I like the idea of having a more affordable package well, so that artists can get up to speed on some of the tool, great tools that yeah. you know, we love as flame artists, right? I right. Mean, we think they're... I mean, it's a hell of a transition when you think what smoke yeah. came from, which was fire, which was... Retail, what, John? You reckon seven hundred thousand? Yes, yes. When yeah. it, in its first iteration. So, what, what year was that? That would have been like fifteen years ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah Ninety-nine. I was on, definitely on the uh, Onyx One. Uh, so let's say 12, 15 years ago. Yeah. And it was seven hundred thousand, and now it's three and a half. And, and run on a laptop. Quite frankly, yeah, it runs on a laptop. Um, I personally think that if you're a Final Cut user, you'd get into this easily yeah. because you'd be able to edit easily. Yes. But then you'd discover the effects. And let's face it, like keying and, and doing effects on Final Cut sucked. Yeah. Yes. And so what would happen is you would send that off to somebody else. So I think what happens is you'll get on this, you'll like it, mm -hmm. you'll be happy there, you'll still send off stuff to somebody else, and then one day you'll go, oh, I could do some of that myself. And then you do more yourself and you discover For sure. more. But if you were coming from... Uh, you know, a world where that wasn't how you were used to working, 
um, that would be, you know, if you were used to doing all your own stuff like in After Effects and stuff, then and Premiere and that looped around, you could be quite happy I and mean, you would have no reason to switch over. But I reckon, I reckon there's just a Final Cut X here. Well, I've seen some pretty damn impressive and complicated offlines in the last few years. Ones that I literally, you, you have to go through it very carefully to try to figure out and realize, oh, they split those two shots, you know? And, or and very, you know, articulated rotos and, and stuff coming out of offline. So, I, you know, the, 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 tool, the, the, the tools and what you need to sell the job to the client to get it approved to move forward is, has gotten more complicated. So I can see people needing this kind of power yep. and being happy to have this kind of power. Well, let's not, let's not get away from the fact that you can finish. There's, there's, no, right, need exactly. to do it. there's right. no need to do an offline online. Right. You just could do it. Right. End of story. Thanks for playing. Is there a concept, I wonder, about like relinking the media and stuff in this? In what sense? You know, in the sense like in a, in a um, you know, in an Avid, you can dis- disconnect your media and, and containers and then, you know, you can actually just reattach new media like the, you know what I mean? Like if you work at a DNX 36 resolution for your offline, then oh, you can I just see. detach your media and then point to new media. And, you know, I don't know how that would work. Well, that begs the question, which market do you think this is going for? I mean, is it... I would imagine this is going to be more in uh, sort of shorter commercial stuff than major feature long-form projects, wouldn't you say, John? Yeah, I think so. I think you're right about that, Mike. Uh, and they're certainly targeting the, quote, indie filmmaker for what that term is. And I think I think for that market, it's a really exciting prospect, as you say. I, I, I think you're spot on, Mike, with that idea of you're, you're going to start out doing the things that make sense in the timeline with the color correction tools, the vertical editing, the keying, but then one day you'll have an aha moment when you get in and actually one start trying out batch effects which is interesting this idea of nodal based changeable type effects as well as action can I make a comment on the you know now the suites will need to rent out at much cheaper kind of comment as someone who doesn't operate the gear but as someone who actually rents it per hour for jobs yeah. I mean when Resolve got cheaper I didn't expect the highly um experienced person operating it to you know charge any less and I wouldn't expect you know a good smoke operator to uh, you know start lowering their rates I'm always paying for the person that, that's doing it and that can be the difference between you getting out getting your job to air and not gotcha yep yeah and I did a big I did a price breakdown I think in the original smoke on Mac release where you know if you're going to trick it out to the level the smoke advanced is the one that they shipped on Linux you know when it was 15 you weren't really far away from the price of a full-blown smoke advanced system with all the storage and cards that you need to put in to do I.O. Um, and so even with a $10,000 difference, approximately 12000 you know, that doesn't change that business proposition that much, even with that. Um, uh, but for people who have file-based workflows, you know, it is a lot cheaper entry point. Uh, yeah. you're, pa- you're paying for someone to do a good job and uh, to yeah. solve your problems and... Uh, get you out the door on time. Yep. You know, it'd be cheaper to do things if the shooting ratio stayed the same. Oh, my God. But the shooting ratio has gone through the roof. <laughs> oh, right? yeah. Like, it's become I don't such a memory problem. Yeah, exponential is even enough of a word to describe it. Don't look at it as a problem, Mike. Look at it ah, as the a creative opportunity. Think of it as a creative opportunity. Think yeah. of it as more creative options in the post-production but, I mean, you literally process. get jobs with deadlines now. You. you get <laughs> jobs with deadlines now that the editor can't even possibly watch all the footage that's been shot before they have to turn in the first cut. That is the, uh, yeah, that is the real, that is always a trick, that uh, the schedules are getting shorter, but the, yeah, 
shooting ratio is going The up. shooting ratio doesn't, doesn't I mean, yeah. get any better. And, and files are getting bigger and more rendering and transcoding is required. What do you do? So, um, again, I guess like how we've done with, with Premiere and, and the new one, I suppose, we're going to have stuff be a bit more drag and drop and a bit more um, less transcoding and more and more codecs being added to stuff. That's going to help. Hopefully, that'll be the same with Smoke. Yeah. Start to have red, you know, the more well, accessible I'm, I'm red, you know, red files. I'm incredibly enthusiastic about Smoke on Mac. Yeah. I think it's going to be yeah. really, really great. I just can't, and quite frankly, I just can't, I can't work Final Cut 10X, whatever it is. I just stayed with the old Final Cut. I didn't move over. The well, software I mean, that shall not be named. As an artist who's been working on Flame for 20, almost 20 years, um, you know, the thought that I could have a discrete tool set on my laptop for $3,500 makes me go, I'd kind of have to, wouldn't I? I mean, <laughs> you know? Yeah, kind of like me I, buying a smoke. And, uh, yeah, I've got to yeah. get a flame license for that. Yeah, too. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, for me, I've always wanted to spend more. I mean, i got to say, I, I think that this addresses a problem that they've had in certain markets. I mean, Los Angeles, by the time smoke became really capable enough to be a product, because face it, when smoke and fire first came out, I, I, I think it was a tough sell. And by the time it got up to the speed, enough people had figured out workarounds in flame that they were able to, like, do the job in flame. And, you know, smoke was better for a timeline process, but you'd already been doing it for a few years in flame, well, so why smoke, not? Smoke was good for versioning and for sure. campaigns. Yeah, and, I mean, I'm not saying it was bad, but by that time you had an investment in artists and you had the equipment already, and a lot of places didn't, in L.A. in particular, I don't think, went smoke route. There were some cities that went heavier smoke. Um, but one of them. Yeah, but I mean, trying to find a freelance smoke artist in L.A. for a while was really difficult. <coughs> okay, well, changing gears, let's discuss Adobe, because we're on editing. We discussed oh, yes. speed grade. I don't want to discuss that any, anymore just now, because I think we did it well in the, um, or rather you did, John, in the uh, in the live show. But I do think that um, you guys have been talking about some stuff, and I haven't had a chance to look at I'd like to learn about which is to do with I guess editing over the cloud over the net over the what the okay so I got worried that there was a demo that I should go see and I went over to the Adobe booth and I, I watched the presentation on Premiere in the cloud I don't know how, I don't remember what they exactly called it but fundamentally here's what happened the guy got on stage he launched a copy of Premiere a special copy of Premiere and started playing some clips and started doing some editing and stuff. And then explained that what we were watching was him working on streaming media coming from the cloud from a server. Where the full res versions of this media resided. This was a technology preview, by the way. Let me make sure I make that very clear because they did. Um, and you say, well, what about resolution when you want to see something? And that, first of all, it was on a projector and I couldn't see anything really horrible in the media. It was very, you know, it was high quality. Right. Was it a postage stamp? Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, exactly. Um, and if you parked on a frame, it filled it, it, it quickly, instantly filled into the full res data, supposedly. So that was pretty cool. I was like, well, I could see that being interesting. Um, and then he launched Skype or something, and a window popped up, and a guy in Seattle took over the edit. He basically saved his edit. The guy opened the edit in Seattle and continued working on it. Literally, you know, they had a little bit of a bug, but it's a demo. But he was able to then work on it. Now, apparently, all the high-res media is living on the server, whether that's Adobe or... I don't know whether that's so Adobe. Was the server there? Do you know if it was I don't know if it was there or if it was... They, they mentioned something about it could be your server, it could be our server. I don't really know how that's going to work, but 
Um, you need some pretty good money upload. Uh, they said, bandwidth, well, upload was the issue. And apparently there were, I talked to somebody afterwards who said that they are very aggressively trying to figure out solutions for making that process easy. That you get really good download and shitty upload on a normal internet account? Usually it depends what account you have. Yeah. yeah. I've got that Fios and I pay a little more. I think I've got 2020. Yeah, yeah mine's cable when I mine's pretty even. Yeah. yeah, but surely this car it doesn't represent a standard <laughs> internet kind of. We run internet companies. We I have 100% redundancy in my house with two separate providers. But I imagine most people. Yeah, it's true. Um, no, it could be an issue. Um, I, I don't know how that works. I mean, like we were just saying, shooting ratios are going up like out of control. So if you've got eight hours of footage, how do you get that in the cloud? I don't know whether you just start editing with it locally and it moves to the cloud. I, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of things that they didn't explain that. Okay, so why do I need to do this? I mean, why, well, why let's, I... think, let's take our, let's take Epic's Guide for example, because I was yeah. thinking about this. Let's say that Jimmy's working on a cut down in Sydney for Netflix Guide TV and he thinks it's finished and he goes to bed. Now what currently happens is Jimmy has to render that out of Final Cut. Jimmy has to compress it to a smaller movie to send, uh, to put up on the server. And then we check it, and then then there's a problem, and you know then we have to go back to Jimmy and have him fix it. Well, in this yeah. scenario, he would finish the cut and save it and go to bed. Okay. Go home, and maybe John gets up when the U.S. wakes up and hits play on his version of the same thing, and you know it's the exact cut Jimmy was working on with the same media, and all the stuff's happening on the cloud. It's not happening on your computer, which I. I, th I think you pointed out, John, that that's an interesting thought because it really, when you think about it, it's only one stream. Yeah, we used to do, yeah, it was. It, this could be really interesting. I mean, it would be perfect for us. We ran the thing, the O-Week thing, special as well, where we upload a, a really, high, you know, high-quality, compressed version of it. We make some changes, and then maybe they grab it back. We render out, and they grab it back down in Sydney in the morning. But if it, you know, if that footage resided somewhere, um, you know, on the cloud or whatever, it, it really could open up some interesting possibilities. But is it Adobe's cloud? I, I don't know. Because most of some of these companies I've never heard of. They're like yeah. cloud computing companies are just popping up like... It's all good fun until someone loses an eye. It's all good fun until someone's loses out a, someone cable. loses an uplink. Somebody backhoes the trench over your cable. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. Not even that. I just that, you know, you'd have all your stuff with a company and they'd suddenly say, oh, we're not offering this service anymore and you need to download 16 terabytes of Right. Now, as far as I understood, it was Adobe doing... Because they're doing this whole creative cloud thing anyway, right? They're doing something else with the cloud. So they? Apparently, aren't they? Everyone's doing something with the cloud. But right. But is, is it actually relevant? I don't know if it's related to this. Over the cloud, it's like a buzzword. It's cloudy. It, well, this was... Okay, this... Stormy. It, I get that, and I agree with you. This was the first time I sat at a demo and went, wait a minute. This is... I mean, you could sit on a MacBook Air working on 4K footage. But the heavy lifting's on the server. You're seeing proxies... And more importantly, when the show's finished and you want to render out a QuickTime version, you want to render out a finished master quality version, that's happening on the big server somewhere. That's That could be a pretty game-changing thing. I think it'd be interesting, like I, like .Mac or you know, iCloud, where you are, if you are the one person that needs to access it, and if you're accessing it at home, great, you've done your edit, oh, you might want to tinker on it while you're away, and then when you come back, great, the full thing's there. But I don't know, I just, it seemed, it, it, if it works seamlessly then terrific but right. if you've well, got one is... person relying on the handover to another person and, and the access from one side of the world to the other side of the world that's where it, 
Well, how do we rate Adobe? Because I would have thought we rated them really well at delivering what they promise and not shipping buggy stuff. Well, and plus, when they show a technology demo, as we've learned, it generally appears in a product. They've been pretty remarkable. They have a pretty good track record in that regard. So do you guys agree? Do you rate Adobe like I do? I do. Very much so. And they don't show stuff until, I mean, you know, like Jeff said, we saw the Mercury playback engine playing uh, for the first time publicly at IBC. We had that on FX TV. We had the first look at the Ray Tracer ever. It actually made it in the software six months later at IBC. I think they're really pushing ahead of the pack, and yeah. the one thing that's, that's making that happen is that they are communicating. They are talking to people. They are engaging with the people who are actually using this shit and saying, okay, what do you want to change? I heard a thing, too. I mean, and their booth was just packed. I mean, oh, yeah. I, yeah. Every time I went down there and, and talking to, uh, oh, I think it was Ellen from Adobe, what was interesting about it is that they were packed for all their demos. They used to be really packed for the After Effects stuff. And when the premiere demos came on, you know, and it was, half, half, and it was a empty. massive Ghost town. stage half, too. Yeah, but that's very different now. This place yeah. is full for all presentations, so I think that's. They a should lot. send a fruit basket to Apple. A lot of chairs there. Yes. I mean, this, for me, what I saw at this demo, I was impressed enough with to think, if you were sitting around evaluating what you were going to do if you're a Final Cut company and you were thinking about Premiere, but you're thinking, well, maybe I should go the Avid because Premiere's just now becoming more robust and powerful and people start to say good things about it again um, I if you if you're this this could sway the decision pretty quickly and, and, and let me I'll throw out I mean what if that footage instead of being on the cloud Mike let's say that the footage was in Sydney with your internet pipe and that we could easily because you're just you know scrolling a, an image like I think we just saw they were you know just seeing an image scrolling and updating what if it was there and I had access to it in an effective way so you weren't actually moving that footage to the cloud. I mean, look, but I'm I, not, I, you know, but yeah, I can right, access right, that. Right. I'm not I really down on it. It's just I, that's really that attractive. I think it's I think it's game changing. I think if Adobe's does it properly, then Adobe's likely to get it right. Have a lot of confidence in Adobe, but but I think you probably guys wouldn't argue with me that I heard the word cloud used, you know, quite liberally around the show. Oh yeah. Um, but this would this falls in my book of very appropriate. Yes, very appropriate. Me too. Uses I agree. To being a buzzword use of it. Hey, um, let's switch to users for a second. And uh, Jace, did you go to um, go to uh, Tom's film, the premiere? Yeah, we uh, finally timescapes Tom Lowe's uh, gorgeous uh, time lapse uh, film was finally premiering. Uh, huge crowd, packed out crowd, red carpet, full, full, full on premiere. Sensational, just looked beautiful. Um, it's not a overly long film; it's about forty-five minutes. I really um, I thought it was longer than that. Yeah, no, it's about forty-five minutes. But there's a lot in there. There is, I mean, every single shot is outstanding. But there are just there's at least twenty or so shots in there that will and could you even if you sat trying to replicate one shot for three years you might never get it it's with some absolute you know religious religious level of cinematography and weather what's that well why do you think what do you put that down to well i used to think because I, I this is kind of this project that anybody who's followed tom or knows tom will sort of 
can see it. He, he tweets a lot of the shots and or blogs a lot of the shots that he does as he's done them. And I've seen there's shots in there that I remember him, sa- him sh- saying at the time, "Wow, look at what's happening in the middle of my frame." And he'll show this uh, just a still of this incredible tornado of, of of cloud that's just sunlit, just right. And none of this stuff was like, "Quick, there's a storm. Let's line up our camera." He would just point his camera, and stuff would happen. And I think. It's a testament to the fact that you've just got to get out there. You know, he got out there and got out there, and it's a lot of late nights, and it's a lot of long nights staring, in, sitting in the dark, staring up at the sky for two, three years. And it's just a testament to the fact that if you get off your butt and actually get out of the house, you, you know, the magic is out there to, to capture. But, uh, you know, not many people can actually dedicate that amount of time. But it's... Uh, What's it's, the narrative? Well, I think a lot of... Like like Koyana Squatsy and these kinds of films, there isn't the narrative isn't. It's sort of a, a, a I guess it's a sort of a different kind of an experience. Okay. It's more of a um, it's it's more visceral. It's not so much a storyline really. Okay. Um, man yeah. struggle against man. Hence being I guess hence, hence, <laughs> hence being the short. Sure. Linked emotionally, not physically or logically. <laughs> told through the mind eye of a man moving from puberty to old age. It's time is an abstract concept. One frame at a time. That's spooky because that's what Tom said. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Tom is a nice guy. Yeah. Tom's yeah. a lovely guy, but he's very, well. um, yeah, cool. he's very not not someone who would uh, really sort of blow his own. Basically, there was a much. gathering of the tribe when it comes to the kind of indie, mm-hmm. high end SLR slash yeah. red set, wasn't it? I mean, like basically, it was a who's who. Yeah, but you look at the progression of when, when this started. Tom hadn't really, when he started this project, he hardly done any time. That's this started off as like a Vimeo thing. If anybody, I'm sure you can probably still find. Maybe if you search for um, uh, is it "Learning to Fly," uh, what's the uh, um, the Pink Floyd track that he had? It had he, basically it was a short Vimeo piece, uh, which got him funding from uh, a few people and from Rubber Monkey in New Zealand. Who, who funded, funded, fund, basically, fund, let's make this, let's turn this into a long, long form piece. So, and it's also sort of crowdsourced through a lot of help. And you, along this, the progress of this film, you see the rise in the DSLR thing, you've seen the rise in a lot of the time that's becoming really popular. The huge, you know, the rise, and rightly so, through some awesome gear of, of, of Eric Kessler and his amazing, you know, his, his rigs. Um, this has sort of all grown in the last two or three years, so it's been a really interesting progression to watch along along the way. And at the back end, uh, there's a lot of funding has come through buying the Blu-ray. So I think actually Timescapes, Timescapes, I want to say Timescapes.com. You can go and you can buy the Blu-ray um, and, and help 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 yeah, Tom we'll out it. because I'm sure he. It's a long time. I'm sure he. I'm sure he's he's not he's not uh, he's not a million. He won't be a millionaire out of this project. Uh, you know. It's a lot of work. Police. Measuring. Police. Ah, yes. About as finest on the road. Slow down, Jeff. I am. (laughs) They were on foot, though. They're not getting me. Well, he's sticking with that kind of realm. What about the Black Magic? Oh, man. So if people haven't been to the show in a while, Black Magic is now the old Apple space. The front, first when you walk in the door, Grass Valley's on the left, and Black Magic's on the right. Apparently, they make them take, if you want that spot, you apparently, it, this is my speculation, they make you take this ginormous swatch of booth, which Black Magic divides into like thirds and takes a third of it and puts their displays on. 
and then just ropes off the rest. But that part that was next year, they might want to think about packing, uh, putting the whole space up because they were packed nonstop yeah. from the time that show opened. Every time I walked by, it's not just Apple's space. I think they've taken over. They've taken over the whole mindset. You look at what they do and the. How innovative and how secretive they are, and disruptive, and how what they do for pricing and, and uh, even the uh, packaging and their design is very intriguing and very different. And okay, well, let me be devil's advocate because on uh, I think it was um, the cinematographer's mailing list, people were just declaring that that camera was designed by blind people. That, <laughs> that you know, it was like an iPhone Such with a, a positive lens space. stuck on it, and it was the you know crappy sensor and a not designed for cinematographers and ran in the face of years of uh, experience to, you know, how to design a camera. And how would you do it sort of shoulder mount because the LED is, you know, back and side and it's like a, it's a, it's a, it's a line drawn from cinematography that went from a cine camera to SLRs and then extended rather than came back to the, uh, so that it's even further away. If, you know, if you could argue that an SLR isn't really great for doing handheld work on this thing has no handle grips at all it's it's like having a large i don't know airline uh novel with a lens stuck on it um with a iphone gaffer taped to the back of it um that being said it was the thing john that people were photographing you holding <laughs> that was funny and we were doing the live show and i was holding i just you know dan moran gave it to me and said you want to so i held it and funny within like two minutes they're like Ten tweets of people taking pictures <laughs> with pictures of me holding the camera. Uh, well, when it came which down, just points from out, the, I think the interest in it, right? From that, oh yeah, from that standpoint, right? Yeah, a lot of interest. Well, Do we see pictures it, from it though? Yes, yeah. we did. Well, not from it. I'm sorry, I filmed with it. I haven't seen the pictures from it. I was like checking out depth of field and, and stuff. That's, I think it's a bit unfair thing. to complain that you know it's unergonomic on the shoulder and all. I think it's not really designed. There's plenty of alternatives if that's the way you want to shoot. I think what's clear, not just seeing that camera, but just seeing all the stuff around the show and the million different ways you can rig your camera, the fact that it's a multi-trillion dollar industry to have all these rigs and brackets and things, is that everybody uses cameras completely differently. And just because they brought this out doesn't mean it's, it's, it's wrong. I think it's just, it's unusual, it's definitely quirky. And I think for $3,000, it, it can afford to be as freaking quirky as it, as it wants, as, as you like. If you imagine, if you're just doing interviews where you're sitting on a tripod and just filming someone, you're sitting on a stool next to it, it's, it's perfect for that, or for casting companies, or for... I think it's, I think it's got a lot of interesting uses. Yes, there's, uh, there's unusual ergonomics with it, and how do you mount it on a shoulder and all that stuff. I think that's perfect. It, it has an SDI out. No one's saying you can't use... Uh, external viewfinder or another external monitor. I believe they uh, make those have things. Doesn't XLR inputs. Doesn't have any sort of. I mean, it's very well, menu the, driven from a, a touchscreen. Well, the inputs are on the side. I mean, I, yeah. I started thinking. I, I, the, the photography on the website is gorgeous. It looks beautiful, but yeah. nobody shows it with connectors sticking out of every hole. And if you do, it, it, it's going to look yeah. like a fright wig. Well, pretty, pretty sure the LCD is on the back of a 5D, and we seem to have managed fine with those by sticking all. You know, you life will find a way. You'd really prefer if it had a flip-out screen, though, wouldn't you? So that if you're sitting beside it, you can. Yeah. See it but the, the more you add that stuff, then the less the price becomes. I think what's what's attracts and what's made, made given this this wow factor is that it is essentially a uh, a two thousand dollar camera with a thousand dollars of of software. You know. So what you're referring there to is the fact that you get a full copy of Resolve 
and the scope software. John, you know the scope software. I don't know it so well. Is it worthwhile having that scope software? Yeah, it's good. It's good if you're going to do that. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't generally not worrying about that when I'm. So it's really just anything. like it's it's scopes and parades and all yeah. that sort of stuff. It's just basically an on-screen virtual version analyzes the signal and gives you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And that's so, starting to, that's starting to trickle into a lot of stuff. I know a lot of the small monitor makers are next versions are all having the scopes built in. You know what's extraordinary though? It really felt like this was uh, you know the illegitimate um, red scarlet. It was as if like you know someone yeah. from Red's design department had been sleeping around and suddenly we had the 3K for 3K well, that's camera what, from that's somebody what, else. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's like somebody said, hey, Red didn't do the 3K for 3K, maybe we we'll should. We'll do it. Yeah. Because Red's original Scarlet, Jace, was two-thirds inch sensor, yep. 3K for $3,000 approximately, yep. shooting raw uh, with obviously a detachable media with the promise of a bunch of other stuff, but most people were interested in putting a cannon mount on that Scarlet. Yeah. So you've got Canon so mount. interested in putting micro, because remember we are going to have the micro primes and... Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were all yeah. specialist lenses. And, and they were like, oh, no, I want a specialist lens. I've got my Canon glass on there. Thank you very much. Yeah. So, Jason, tell people how it compares in terms of if I had some L-series glass from a 5D, mm-hmm. what would happen to a 50mm if I stuck it on a... Uh, you bastard. Uh, micro four thirds from memory is about halfway between a two thirds inch between sixteen and uh, between sixteen and thirty five. So I'm trying to remember what the crop it's a, factor is. It's a bit is. less than a seventy, right? Uh, less than a seventy, definitely. Yeah. Um, but it's more than and more two-thirds. than what essentially sixteen mil. So yeah, you, you, you had no problem getting, you know, just just in few minutes that you had it in your hand. There's no problem getting, you know some shallow depth of field happening. I don't know whether people necessarily who use this are really going to be that fast about the whole shallow depth of field thing. I think it's the fact that they've got an image that they can, that uh, you can contr- that you can control and it's all reasonably, there's no lock, you're not locked into any uh, codecs. Um, because it'll run out ProRes, DNxHD or RAW. raw. Yep. And of course DaVinci reads it. Did I just read that that it said RAW log? Yeah. Because I was like, wait a minute, the sensor's definitely not log, so what the hell is raw log? Well, they want to encode the files um, in a raw format, but it's obviously not raw, raw, raw. I was just saying, if it's... So, they're calling it raw log because, um, yeah, it's a bit of a misnomer, I agree. But here's the thing, um, and, you know, obviously, this is something we all know, but people just focus on the sensor size in terms of shallow depth of field, but of course the other thing that defines the depth of field is how wide open you are. And with Canon glass, you can yeah. put a one-two on there. So, you know, exactly, which is were, going to be probably the same as if you had a two-point-eight zoom on, uh, say, a seven D. You're probably going to get a similar, yeah. similar depth of field. So you get something, not everything. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot right about it. I mean, micro four-thirds is probably my one, you know, my one complaint with it. Really, I think ergonomically you can work around. I think the touchscreen interface was really interesting. You definitely, if you want to put this on the shoulder, you definitely can. We certainly saw on the on the stand that you could certainly rig it up and put it on brackets and follow focus and some map boxes and all that sort of stuff. Here's another interesting fact. There's a lot of stuff about you know how now Red is making their camera in the US of A, mm. and this car we have two Americans and two non-Americans, but. Um, and that, you know, they had all these manufacturing problems in China and blah, 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 and they geared up, and that, that was like a huge thing for Red. Yeah. We know that Blackmagic has their own factories and are able to produce stuff 
for themselves from their own factories and, and have been for a while. Incredibly quickly. So yeah. it's likely that they're not going to have any of that manufacturing problem, now admittedly Red was hit with an earthquake, but even before the tidal wave tsunami earthquake atomic disaster in Japan, Red was already behind in terms of shipping. It wasn't like that yeah. was the only thing that caused the problem. No, absolutely. Um, it was a very timely, you know, not excuse, but it was a... It was, yeah, it was a, the one, it's like the straw that broke the camel's back, but the back was already hurting under the weight of what was trying to be done. Yeah. But so, you know, one could make a guess. We don't normally discuss Black Magic having big manufacturing problems in any way, shape, or form, and they, and they manufacture a lot of kit. A lot. Yeah. It makes, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I, th- I think what's interesting is the whole SSD thing, because they've started off, they, from the very beginning last year, when they launched their, that, the, the shuttle... Yep. Uh, the small, the small, small one, and then the sort of one unit rack high yep. system. That they really wanted to make this, start to make this a bit of a production standard. And if no one necessarily adopts it, hey, let's start making our own cameras. Maybe they'll do more high end cameras as well. But to be able to take the SSD out of there and dock it immediately, and uh, have have codecs that don't really need any transcoding or in for DNxHD, will just go straight into some editing. Uh, editing software straight away. I think it's going to appeal to TV stations. Isn't it? I mean, isn't this camera just perfect for a TV station that normally works off sticks? Yeah. Because you just use it like tapes, right? You just pop the SSD from the camera, wander yeah. in, and stick it in a virtually a VTR and play it out. Yeah. They make the little plastic back boxes so you can take your S, store the message in. You know, they design them all to be looking like, you know, like a like a tape box. They want this to be. You know, a, a format as valid as as DigiBeta. Yeah, I think they're going to sell a lot more of those. That's a really good point. I find it really interesting now that they have acquired well, acquisition as part of their product. They had finishing and rating. They have infrastructure things as well. Uh, and now they're trying to get the front ends, which of course does lead to more sales of their other stuff, right? So it's pretty smart from that standpoint. Yeah, and uh, they're a company that's not afraid of um, buying other companies. You know, they. Um, so they've been growing, and yep. uh, yeah. when they have bought products like DaVinci, they haven't trashed them, ruined them, and you know walked away from them or put them on a shelf and done nothing with them. They've managed, against all odds, to seem to integrate them. So here's my question to you guys. If, if we were to come to the show next year and have another surprise from Blackmagic, but next year it's an acquisition, because let's face it, I would never have predicted Blackmagic was going to buy DaVinci. I wouldn't have predicted they were going to put out a camera. But if they were going to come next year, we said, "Oh, there's a big surprise because Blackmagic's bought another company. Who would fit into that portfolio? Is there anyone that you would be like, oh my god, that was a surprise, but now I hear it, it makes sense.' Editing have to be, wouldn't it? Seems like the missing link Just in their product line. Yeah. You've got you've got uh, stuff to convert. You've got stuff to output. You've got stuff to run through TV stations. Lots of rack mounted stuff." Cameras. Switch live shows with. Switch, yeah, well, yeah. we're using a switcher. Yeah. I mean, we seriously, so having used that solidly for six and a half hours, how did you write it? I mean, I'm, I mean seriously, it, it's a, the, well, we switched the FX Guide live show from the floor on a one rack unit. What's the name of that thing, John? ATEM. ATEM. It's a one rack unit, and when John told me it was one rack unit, I expected it to be <laughs> one rack unit, like the, the, the depth of the rack, you know? Yeah. And it's like three inches thick and most of that's the center heat sink the rest of it's like an inch thick and it's a row of six uh, BNC connectors and a row of like six HDMI connectors in and you can mix and match so we had three red cameras and a down convert from the foundry booth going into this switcher and then the output's on the other side 
And then the, the control panel, you can buy a control panel for it, or you can use a laptop. And you just hit the preset button for one, two, three, or four, or five, six on the keyboard. And when you hit the space bar, it takes it. And there's a little graphical switcher on the screen, and you can do wipes and dissolves and all that stuff. We weren't using it for any of that stuff, but yeah, it just rocked. It just worked. And how did, how did the laptop connect to the Ethernet. Rack? Ethernet. Private. Okay. You just do a separate Ethernet for it, and yeah. it just worked. And it's, I mean, it worked I mean, flawlessly. I know, I know there's nothing like great planning, which is what you spend a lot of time planning this, but man, Actually, I was so, so, say, right. I was so impressed. Well, though, Ryan how, and John, and no, John seriously, yes. like, you guys totally... We, we can't give you guys enough credit for the work yeah. you got out of the Chicago office. It was extraordinary. Yeah, but it came together. I was literally, I was expecting, when I walked to the, the set to watch you be bumping in, I expect, okay, settle in for a, let's bring a sleeping bag and watch this. And it was, man, the cameras were popping up on the screen, bang, as fast as you can plug them in, everything, there was no issues. You know, the red, the uh, epic uh, is not... Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, um, John. Oh, are you going to go there? Okay. Can you, uh, can you just explain what happened in the... Uh, in the yeah. 20 minutes there are very little issues okay yeah, from my we point of view I knew none of this seriously guys I, I yeah. we're making this up the for show I knew none of it we it, kept it, it that way yeah and, and we, we, did, we did keep it that way because frankly things happen on live TV and having done that I'm used to it but anyway so we went to set up uh, Sunday night we pulled cables Monday night we went in and took the Mac Pro and hooked everything up and plugged everything in made sure it worked rolled some stuff tested the streaming everything was perfect Monday night. And so before that, you'd done a, oh, a whole day in well, the suite in Vegas yeah. and weeks of testing in Chicago. Yes. <laughs> so, yes, we arrive on the stand 7, 10 in the morning, three hours before we go live, and the hard drive, uh, the hardware raid fails. So, we basically lose our playback discs of how, of where we're going to play back material. So yeah, that, that, that was a good. Yeah, this is all, this is not just a few clips off the web, right? This is everything <laughs> we shot, everything. all our, you know, yeah. two crews shooting and editing yeah. right through the night until seven in the yeah. morning. Because don't forget, guys, when you're listening to when you know this, we turn up in Vegas, but the show doesn't open till Monday, and we have to have packages for Tuesday morning, which means we had to go out and meet these people, do the interviews, get back to the suite, get them edited, get them compressed get them loaded and have the on-air crew know what was going to be happening <laughs> by Tuesday morning. And put them on a nice safe drive ready for the next day. Well, it was a so, raid. Yeah. Right. So, yeah Can I is. just ask what brand it was? Apple Raid Card. Um, okay. And the problem was it was rebuilding and so you have performance issues when you're doing that. So we do not want to be playing back from that during the show and having hitches because uh, we found out the best quality to stream through the Ustream was animation codec 100%. So pretty big files uh, going through. So we're doing that. So Ryan... You know, try some things and, and, and ends up just building a software rate. But now, Mike didn't know up, up to this point, and he's like, you know, I really need to. I've never fucking done live TV in my life, you know. And it's, well, we had planned to have a rehearsal, and I'm watching yeah, the clock go down. Yeah, but yeah, no one's having nine, a rehearsal. We're, we're, the plan was at nine thirty to the rehearsal. You're asking in anticipation around eight, right? At which point, I have to come clean and say, we said we're going to do a rehearsal and. In 15 minutes, try one early, just us. And I'm like, mm, yeah, not gonna happen uh, because at that point it was still on top of the raid failing. Something started happening with the ATEM or the Ustream software, one of the two, where we'd roll a package on top of things and the input feed became a question mark on the screen. Could not figure it out. Did not know what was going on. And, and so we've never seen this. Never ever. seen it ever. Yeah, and we're, we are talking months of trialing this stuff and so forth. Luckily, uh, 
ride again. We had to had the fortitude foresight to actually bring a sink generator and end up plugging a sink generator in uh, and actually got it up and working that scene to. That was that eight minutes. It still weren't allowed. We still I, couldn't do things like rehearse because number one, need to make sure that it was actually working. And number two, actually had to still copy the files and get the files on the system. Right, because all the dri- all the clips were now on an external <laughs> drive that now yes. had to be copied into the system, which was now pointing to a new disk. Now, how many minutes before we're going to go live? So that you know, well, we yeah, I mean, you know that scene in Broadcast News where they're running with the tape down the hall. Yeah. yeah. But we ran into a few file cabinets on the way. But it was it was pretty much working by nine fifteen. We felt comfortable by nine or nine fifteen that we were everything was going to be okay. Oh no, it was closer than that. Loading the stuff in. Yeah, it was. I was nervous at five minutes to air. Oh, I was. I was fine. I I was okay with it then because we'd done the rehearsal. We we basically put the rehearsal moved from nine thirty to nine forty five in the end. So it basically shifted fifteen minutes. We had only one rehearsal, and it was not the best rehearsal in the world. But we learned but a lot. But we did it. We learned a lot from it. Worked better and went on the air 15, you know. But we went on air exactly when we should have gone on air. Yeah, yeah, we yeah absolutely. Late to air. No, absolutely. So we're, you know, we were 15 and minutes late. What we wanted to do is be able to do two rehearsals, which is why it was 9.30. But, yeah, but when you say we were late, we're only internally late. We weren't yeah. late to the public. But here's yeah. the other thing. Uh, you know, and you summed it up, Jason. It's like failure requires no planning. Mm. I mean, if you guys out of Chicago hadn't had backups, hadn't done planning... I mean, you, know, you could have reasonably said, what's the chance of a raid going down, like, you know, yeah. half an hour before we went to air? Um, but you had, like, redundancy and redundancy. Raid five, right. Yeah, no, it was, yeah. Yeah, it was This is, like, a good quality kit. Um, I just totally admire the fact that that was done. He was, Ryan was cool under pressure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Well, and not only that, my demo was the first segment, <laughs> and I'm directing the show. So Ryan had to, and I'm on camera for the opening, so Ryan had to direct, switch, everything for the first 40 minutes of the show. Because even though you guys were incredibly generous in donating for the event and it allowed us to do it, we didn't actually have like a, you know, a hired crew of like 30 people or even 10 or even, you know, we had like one guy who was Ryan in the control room at that stage. We had three cameras and I think only two camera operators at that stage. There were many times during the show I was like, hey, is anybody free to pick up six? And I was like, can you lose an operator on five? It's like, <laughs> yeah, sure. Actually, while we're on that rat hole, the other one that I thought was really funny is that John, when we were presenting, and suddenly the lights went off. Oh, yeah, that was... Yeah, there yeah. was a... Uh, but luckily we had uh, Jason's camera with battery pack. Right. And Jeff saw him. Hey, well, yeah, we there, there, there were three cameras. They happened to be four, five, and six. Six was the handheld. It was on battery. We took four, and it went up perfectly, went to black. And somebody went on the headphones. We lost power. And I looked. Six was there. We went to six. And it was a handheld. So I'm like... Yeah. Something checked. We lost the power supply on yeah. two, the other two epics. Well, because so. it's a booth. So what happens? They yeah. run power cords all over the place. They do a good job. And then somebody brings a backpack in and throws it where it doesn't belong. And Literally. It, they threw a backpack down. And it yes. pulled the plug out of the wall. Yeah. Which meant that all of our lights... And we didn't even know that's where the plug and, was coming from. Yeah. And everything else went down. Except for, of course, you were okay because you're in the control room, so you had a the control hard closet, cable please. And my camera was battery powered. Yeah, so yeah. you had one camera feed to one. Yeah, but uh, I was looking in a completely different part of the set. And then the only the only thing I was worried about then is I can't stay on this camera forever because this poor guy's gonna whoever's on the camera's gonna fall over. I think we were at some for point. Like a minute, right? Yeah, we, we were. We were going to a package. Other. Well, the ironic thing is we weren't even gonna use. We weren't even scheduled in that break to have more than one camera because um, it was just a quick thing, right? Yeah. And we had been having 
Uh, you were on camera then, right, Jason? Yeah, it was yeah. my quest for art that yes, I was we were off looking we were, for interesting we were, shots. We were looking for fun, interesting shots. We were trying to make the show look as live as possible, so we are trying to get boost shots. Oh, six, shots you're on. And, whoa, okay. Yeah. It was fun, guys. Yeah. Was, you know yeah. It was also the John, fun. you were seamless, I tell you. It was just like, well, and now I'm looking at this camera. The other thing I think was really funny is we were waiting for somebody to turn up for an interview, and we thought, it's okay, because we've got this uh, demo that's going to be going on with Nuke for a while, and that'll take up a lot of time. Oh, yeah. And, and I was like... I suddenly went on the schedule, hey, I'm meant to be doing the Q&A at the end of this. And I thought, well, I don't know anything about the asset management software that they're using as part of this demo. Because when I first looked at it, that whole demo swapped out, right? Because we, we lost permission. Because you guys have to understand, we had to get rights for all this footage. Right. So you can't just, you know, put out anything. And we had a different package in there uh, with somebody else. And we lost the ability to broadcast that because HBO wouldn't give us permission. So then we had this other one, which was great. It's really good, don't get me wrong. And it's an important topic. It's just I wasn't prepped on it. Right. And I was doing Q&A. So I think, well, it's all right. I'll go over and pay over attention. And, you know, we'll just keep the Q&A short. And we didn't anticipate is that this uh, ring-in, uh, great, you know, we appreciate them doing it, but this was really short. Well, no, I was giving countdowns back to live. And I gave the 40-minute thing. And Ryan goes, okay, I'm going to run to the restroom. And... He left the room, so now I'm in the control room by myself, and I hear them say, "Okay, well that'll do it for this." And I'm just like, "Oh, uh, yes." You know, fortunately we had people on camera, we were ready to go, but it was so a little doing, bit of a scramble. Well, I started doing the Q and A, and I'm looking over to John because I'm meant to be going thrown to him next, and they haven't even built that set yet. And you're whoever you're interviewing, which was Pixel Farm, John. I think so. Well, yeah, Wasn't yeah. There well, yet? we did. We were actually tossing to me for a minute and a half toss, I believe. To oh, okay. a video package, right. uh, whatever it was, but, but you know, which is why we're not worried. But yeah, there was nothing going on, so we had to scramble. And I had Jeff in my ear saying, "You're just going to have to stretch this for like a 20 minute Q and A. Are you okay doing that?" And I'm standing there talking to someone, shaking my head, going, mm, "No, no, yeah. not really, yeah. no." Yeah, because Mike could hear me, but I and obviously I couldn't. I couldn't hear him because we didn't have a hot mic. He had a hot mic on, so I would just uh, ask him. I try to ask him questions. Okay, if yes, no answers when he wasn't on camera, so I could look at the pre- viewfinder to get yes anyway. or no's and it was like no it was fine <laughs> because I saw Bruno at the side so when I ran out of questions oh, yeah. asset management that I was brilliant Bruno and started quizzing Bruno who is one of the founders of the Foundry and a particularly good guy to ask questions of given he's uh, obviously very very senior in R&D as well but that's just the fun of doing it but i got to say that that's, it was fun it, it was a whole lot of fun, fun and you know so I got my start in you know, high school and college doing live TV so was, uh, I remember why I like it so much uh, not the least of which is when you're done, you're done. Oh yeah, I remembered that so well. But at the end of that, I, I, people, some people probably don't know that I started in television. I had a full career in television, producing, directing, everything. From, I kind of specialized in music shows, and I used to do live news, and I, I loved it. Um, but the last time I sat in a control room was 27 years ago. So it, uh, let's put the headphones on we started the show and it was like it immediately all came back it was like well, I had no experience whatsoever in life and you shows. were a freaking natural you were a friend. master you were just well, brilliant you. You were although I do apologize for the uh, we had a interrupted you feedback mother of a <laughs> we had an IFB system which is interrupted feedback to his ear to, the ta- to Mike and John's ear so I pushed a button on an intercom system and both of them could hear what I was saying the little you know cheesy earpiece and uh and my three and take three and oh that's a great the shot problem, wow, fantastic. <laughs> the problem was it was a latching button that I didn't know it was 
and I'm talking to Jason in the RC, and it's my ear that's closest to Jason. And normally all I hear is every once in a while, 10 minutes to go, you need to cross to camera three kind of thing, right? But all of a sudden, I'm trying to hear Jason talking, and all I can hear in my ear is Jeff go, oh, oh, I love that shot on camera six, go to six, go to six, oh, good guys, guys, okay, now, go, oh, I'm loving this, this is great fun. And I cannot hear Jason, so I turn off my earpiece, it's the obvious thing to do. Yep. And I'm sitting there talking to Jason, I realize I have no idea where, where and when I'm meant to go next, what I'm meant to do. Luckily, um, I actually, at that particular point, knew what I was talking about for a change and wasn't begging you, Mike, with my eyes to please help me here and interject and just we move <laughs> on for a change. We're going to thank you guys for really rallying around and giving us yep. um, the support to allow us to do that because obviously we had a ball doing it, but... You know, we only did it because we thought you guys would like watching it. We've had actually a lot of really good feedback from Twitter and stuff, haven't we, John? Yeah, it was fantastic and really interactive. The people who were watching were in chat, uh, sending questions, and we actually got them answered. Helped us with a couple issues. Like, I don't know, someone pointed out something like a like that. Oh, Just yeah. because in the heat of the moment, you know, sometimes. Yeah. Uh, a few people actually said that they thought that being able to send us messages while we're on air was just what made it for them, you know. Yeah. And uh, I've got to say... I and now we're going to do that with all podcasts. I would do that again. If we're doing that again, I don't think somebody else suggested this, not an original thought, have somebody uh, just dedicated to social media, yeah. answering those questions, looping stuff back, and... Um, we learned. Because well, actually it was fun. Yeah, because I, I thought I would have time to lower a window on my Mac, and I did briefly jump into the chat and say hello and see if, what was going on, but... You know, I forgot how much brain power it takes to back time a show and keep things on track and call cameras at the same time. And and Ryan was, you know, doing. He was tied up, so there was really no free space for us to do it in the control room. So at the top of the show, we said we'd be discussing a little bit about lighting, and we said we bought some lights. So John, what did you buy? You're in a trade show with every light manufacturer in the planet. What actually? Well, we wandered you around. Yeah, we wandered around. I actually don't know exactly what I bought. <laughs> I mean, I just, I, you know, the, you just the bottle, but I, uh, what we did do is we found these really cool lights. We found the ICANN booth. Um, it really does some cool products. I mean, one reason we were asked to look in there is a reputable company. Um, you know, there are a lot of inexpensive knockoff LEDs. Um, so we just wanted to make sure we found a good company and get the information about it. And ended up what they were like effectively one foot by six inches. So, so you know how the generally the LED lights are these square Pretty panels? Square, yeah. Yeah. This was a much more of a rectangular panel, horizontally long. And it was light uh, in weight. Very uh, light. The weight of it was incredible. What, probably, I don't know, an ounce is what, nine ounces, maybe half a pound. And, and it wasn't like as if that. they'd moved all that power weight to an external power supply, because the power unit wasn't very heavy in its own right. It's just like a little wall wart. You know, a little wall thing. Yeah. Yeah, so we ended up looking at those. They were f- uh, 500 bucks a piece. And they come with batteries. They come with a chart, you know, a little mounting stand, a little Sounds diffuser good. and things like that. And the quality of the light was nice. Mike took some photo. You took uh, a still of me Before under that light just to, yeah, just to check out to see, see the quality of it. It looked nice. Uh, so we were pretty much set on buying three of these, you know, two kits or maybe to travel around. Uh, because one of the keys is just keeping weight down and portability. Um, and I think also you mentioned uh, you mentioned in this that the, the idea about the Mark III being able to shoot in such lower light that really does change the dynamic of what you need to light something. So anyway, we're wandering around and we're, Jeff and I are walking through this booth, walking by this booth, and I'm like, yeah, these lights look identical to the ones that are 
aside I can. It's one of those non-slick booths, yeah. kind of a you know uh, printed it poster was, background and yes, it was no like the central Beijing. Yeah, concern limited or something <laughs> yeah. like that. You know, <laughs> um, but yeah. they were the identical lights, identical, and it's, so we ended up talking to them, and they're like, "Well, you can you know buy some now, or we have floor models." I'm like, "Well, how, how much are the the floor models?" And they're like, "Well, two hundred forty bucks." And I'm thinking, "Wow, that's great." Okay, we got, we'll definitely take that. And they're like, "And the new ones are two fifty a piece." Uh, as it turned out, this original this lighting manufacturer it was the original lighting manufacturer. And nonetheless, their U.S. office is located in Chicago. So they're actually going to bring them down for us next week. Uh, and it, they're really nice. I like this idea of portability. I'm you know, traveling around, going to FMX in a couple weeks to, to cover that. But you bought four of these. And I'm not going to... And the, not you can put them all in a... pretty light <laughs> Yeah, I'm not going to carry you know, four banks or even those. Now can, I'm so done with the square LEDs, heavy LEDs that I have yeah. already. I'm like, and you oh, kept leaving them in the back of the car like, I'm going to get stolen. He yeah. goes, yeah. Or, so or that's interesting. Or Go especially on. the Kino flows. You know, you've got the well, yeah. there. Yeah. You could put all of these in the Kino flow case. Actually, the Kino flow case would weigh more than all four of these. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, it's uh, it's brilliant. So I would say that Zagudo had an interesting light, though. Uh, what was that? I don't yeah. actually know. Do you know? You have it's a, um, it's, it's really interesting. The idea I understand is that to make a white LED, right, it's really hard. You have to sort of find the phosphor. You have to really sort of almost paint something over an existing LED to make it white. And you almost have to have this correction process. Which is one reason, actually, that I'm not happy with some of the LED lights that I have. Yeah, I there's think, a lot. I think it has a little too much of that green factor in them. That they are so you. varied. Yeah. Some of them are green. Some of them are very, very warm, very sort of magentary. You really... Yeah, you really have to sort of test this stuff, and not by eye, of course. You really can't detect this stuff. You have to get a camera out and really see. Because a lot of time, yeah. a lot of the times you're mixing. You, you never necessarily have that light source by itself. You're always adding that light to existing daylight. So you, if the light was by itself, you could completely just grade it out. But um, if you're mixing it with real daylight, that's when you really see. Oh, this is really sickly green. But yeah, the uh, Zakuno, the idea behind it is not actually an LED, it's I think what they call a gas plasma, uh, where they actually tune, almost like a bright neon kind of thing, where they actually tune the gas inside it to be exactly correct. They spend a lot of time trying to make it very correct for daylight. Uh, and uh, did you see the side by side with the light panels? Yeah, yeah, it was an, an actual light the panel. The output LED. level is just yeah. uh, in, insane. And, and, and like the one that you bought, they put the power supplies off, off, off the light. It uh, makes for a, a really thin, very light light panel itself, uh, with an external power pack or power supply. But they're they're coming. They're, they're still in development. That was a prototype. Another few months, and I think they'll be about twelve hundred dollars. But they are a How much, much about about a thousand, twelve hundred dollars or okay. so. I think a lot. You know, more than what you're used to. But um, the look, light output is you know it's replaced. Yeah, it had a nice, interesting softness to it because it, what a lot of those LEDs are. You know, you 300, 300 dots, which in a way, unless you're going to put something soft over the top of it, you do see 300 little shadows, whether you notice it or not, subconsciously. So, how big was this, Jason? I'm sorry, I uh, similar to light panel size, really. I think yeah, wasn't it wasn't. It's kind of like the yeah, like the sort of 35 or, th- or so centimeters square. Huh. Yeah. 
So, also, the uh, cool thing right next to that booth also was this new DP7 panel from Small HD, just mm. gorgeous, especially the OLED one. Yeah. Uh, which is fantastic. Jeff and I looked at shipping later this year. They're really a very clever company. They're doing, they have, uh, they were just showing prototypes, but they're very close to finishing it. Uh, the DP7, they've got two models. One is a high brightness, and they took that out to the bright, you know, Nevada sun and was, uh, could still have a great, uh, a great image on it. And the OLED is, uh, yeah, I mean, th- these monitors aren't, aren't cheap. High brightness and OLED is always going to be expensive at the moment, about two and a half grand. But every time you see an OLED, you just cannot, you can't take your eyes off it. They yeah. are just the blacks a, are a so stunning, nice a too. stunning panel. They had a comparison with another manufacturer's there next to it. You could really see uh, that's true uh, yeah. the difference and what a difference it makes. Yeah, and it's going to have a, a SDI to HDMI backwards and forwards. Uh, Convert, yeah. It's SDI in and out, and HDMI in and out, and cross-convert. And a very cool function is that in all four corners of the panel, it's got proximity sensors. So what you can actually even all you have to do is just reach for the monitor, and menus will come up, and right next to all the little soft touch buttons. So when you back away from it, all the menus disappear, and you're just left with the nice image and a nice black bezel. So it's kind of like those cool, you know, remember the old Sony. Sony monitors that had all the displays up the side. Yeah, the press a button. So very cool, very clever. And let's loop around though, because we've touched on it a couple of times. We haven't really discussed it in detail. Just how freaking impressive those cannons are in terms of the ISO. Yeah. I mean, really, like we were shooting, obviously with lighting, most situations we were shooting it. But other times, just because we were hanging out, we were shooting like in the back of limos and stuff, and we were just getting unbelievably great results of what, 5,000 ISO? 5,000 ASA is, I wouldn't hesitate to shoot anything at 5,000 ASA, period. Now, yeah, period. If I needed to shoot something at 5,000, I wouldn't hesitate. We, I shot, before we went to NAB, I shot a test at a carnival in LA, and it was just at the end of the light, and I shot it at 5,000 ASA, and it looked like I shot it two hours earlier. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. The noise was low. And we had that same experience. I mean, we, we shot some stuff with a 51.2 at like 5,000 in a restaurant with no light. No light. I mean, I was like, Mike was shooting this. I'm thinking, I don't think this is going to work. This, this is too far. I've, I've pushed this camera through, you know, a test even with two candles as a light source. And I thought, nah, this is never going to work. And I, I played it. And I, I was stunned. It was usable. It's another level of, becomes another completely valid level of exposure control. Forget changing your shutter speed because it might change, you know, your 180 degree shutter rule. Forget changing your your iris because that'll change your depth of field. Just, just you know, they should just have ISO priority where, you know, just ch- just just change your your ch- change, like change your sensitivity. Forget filters. Well, I guess you could put it in manual and leave the ASA and auto. Yeah, no, of course. But you could just use that as your primary exposure. Yeah, it's true. Exposure the only thing correction. I'd say, though, and it, it is awesome, take nothing away from it, but, but a kind of word of advice is you can't judge the noise from the back monitor. Right, absolutely. So you can put it... I picked up the camera in a restaurant. Now, admittedly, I was had been through half a bottle of Saturn, but I started taking photos and didn't realise that I'd been shooting at, at uh, 20,000 ISO off the back of the monitor, and I don't think 20,000 is no. an acceptable number. No. I mean, yeah, sure, if it's the only chance to film, you know, the assassination attempt of the Duke of Austria, then by all means, shoot anything you like, but 
if you're trying to get something that you would use at a production environment, I don't think 20 is a sensible number. And yet you cannot tell that you're on 20 by looking at the back screen. The back screen LED, wow, magnificent, is no indicator of that stuff. Then you see it later on a you know laptop or a tower and you're going to be a little disappointed. Um, so I would actually like some feature, and I, I know this is just too obscure, to kind of set a maximum ISO that I can do without an override or something. I think, uh, I think if you're you in an auto ISO, you can set, if yeah. you're in auto mode, you can set ISO limits. Maybe you can do that if you're in manual. Um, I didn't even know that. Yeah, yeah, you can set limits in automatic for sure. Yeah, yeah. Because I've got mine set to 12800. But I never even thought about, even thought twice about not doing anything, um, you know, I was doing stuff in 2000, 3000, 5000 ISO easily, didn't even, you know, maybe maybe four tops is probably, until, until we really start to, to look at this, you know, really start to look at the look at the results, because, you know, we've, we haven't had our cameras for very long. People were saying, would you buy one of the um, Blackmagic cameras? And I think you just cannot judge that stuff until you get to see what the sensitivity is like on the yeah. sensor and what the noise level and noise footprints like. You just can't learn it from a brochure. You certainly can't trust PR photos. And so it's not until you actually get a camera. I mean, I knew all these specs on the Canon. There was no secret, but you think you get it. Like we did at the Dodgers game, John, and just take some photos overlooking Los Angeles. And on those high ISO readings, it looks like an HDR. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. It's buttery. It's but just smooth. It's pretty. I'm really happy with that they, camera. They've had clearly had a team of, I don't know, 10, 20 guys working round the clock for whatever the last two years, um, making sure that uh, every single button is relocated to yes. a completely yeah. different position. Now, if you've been on a 7D, it's not quite as bad, well, but there still are a few major like, jumps. True. Like, you know what? we got an idea that this button isn't going to move. What are we going to do about that? And someone, that's okay. We'll change we'll, the icon on it. Right. So, so no, we will put a task force on it, and then we'll put another, uh, we've got another five guys that will we'll come up with another brainstorm. way of burying yeah. it for you. Yeah, we've got a yeah, we've got a yeah. whole computer supercomputer working on how we can, yeah. how we can best it, relocate it for the maximum amount of unergonomic. You cannot reach it unless you completely shift your hands. Yeah, and then so when it takes you twenty minutes to go through all the menu options and takes a book to figure out what half of them mean. It's like, yeah. Okay, and here's the other thing that I didn't predict knowing the specs as I did and having read them all, knew this completely, didn't predict how much I, A, would not be able to use and B, would not want to use some of my uh, CF cards. Now, oh, that's, that is let me just explain that for a second. Remember that you thing. can theoretically use all your CF cards in the Mark III, except for I had some uh, ones that were thicker than normal. These are professional cards. They work fine in the 5D Mark II, and they're, um, I bought them from Sammy's, from, uh, you know, they're like really are so meant to be bulletproof, and they're exceptionally high speed, but they're fatter than the old ones. And there must have been a spec that said they're normally X thickness, but you can go to Y. And then when they went to the Mark III, they said we can put in the SS, the S, the um, small SD card, if we don't, you know, keep it back at, at X. and all those few users that bought the thick cards. Ah, interesting. That being said, Jason, you didn't have that problem and still wanted to go to the SD card. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've got like eight, ten CF cards. I think the very first day we were doing some interviews and I just had my eight or ten CF cards, like 16 gig cards, and we were using the higher the higher bit rate, the all-eye uh, compression. Video rate, yeah. And we were, I was ripping through cards, and you were on your SD card, I think, Mike, right? 
you had one of the other cameras was on an SD card and we hadn't changed it in hours and I'd gone through five cars. I thought, hang on a second. Stuart recommended a particular card, which was a 32 gig, but John actually recommended a 64 gig and I was going to buy the 32 and John was like, you're nuts, just buy the 64. And John, I've got to thank you for that because uh, it's been invaluable. Yeah, yeah, it makes a big difference. And oh. you guys are big fans of the SD card and I... The first day I was working with, I, I put an SD card in. I was actually working with the Wi-Fi card, trying to test all that. Well, that's um, your problem. Well, no, I, that was fine. But then I put a 16 gig card in there. I shot some stuff on that. And I was playing with it. I was like, okay, it's great. Went to take it out, and it launched like a rocket out of the spring-loaded and flew across the room. And I'm crawling around trying to find the damn thing. And then somebody handed me one at the show to take down to the suite. And I was walking down the hall, and I dropped it on the carpet, which you know, Vegas carpets—they're noisy. You know their pattern and stuff, and I'm looking around again. I'm like, I'm sorry, but I want my media to be something I can find. I think that's a feature. I don't have that's, a, like I don't... The, that's the DIT go long uh, <laughs> launch. It gets it to the DIT guy really, really quickly. But, hey, no, I will say, no, no, but you don't have a card reader. You I don't have a built-in it... slot in my no, well, laptop yet because yes. I bought well, the, I think, my I think I'm fine. absolutely hooked with it. I I can replace. My two big Pelican snap cases with eight cards. Ah, there we go, smaller. With two little 64. The, the card I bought was less spec, I think, than yeah, Stu is. said. I used the Lexar Professional 400X uh, card, and I haven't seen any problems. And there was like 105 bucks or something, and Sammy's bought two of them. I changed cards, like, you know, I went through an entire day without even charge, and that was movies, stills, raw. You name it, and I'll have to go shop so at the Jason House of you traveling, it's brilliant. I but it's better than having a card reader and then not having to plug the yeah, Fireware 800 card reader yeah. in and you know, load it straight in the laptop. Yep. So, so it's going laptop. Yeah, yeah, you have trans- I, you know, nice, fast transfer speeds. I'm converted. I'm sorry, I got that's it. It. I'm sure I'm when done. I upgrade my laptop eventually if and I get like the SD card. If you'd like to buy 816 gig CF cards, please follow me on Twitter at Wingrove. Lovingly cared for by a director. Like First owner. Yeah. One time owner. Hey, guess there's one more product I want to discuss. We didn't get a chance to discuss in the live show. That's all right. Um, we mentioned that there was DaVinci and there was a new version 9. What we didn't discuss, which I think is kind of interesting, Jeff, is that there is a base light from uh, Fieldlight uh, as a Nuke plug-in. And it's more than what I thought it was going to be. I knew that they were going to be doing this. I've got the heads up. Uh, it's not in beta yet, but it's or it's close to beta. I've got the dates, and we will publish a separate story on this. But um, we went over and had a look at that, as well as a, a DIT um, cool station for on set. Uh, but it it is actually more than just a new plugin. What did you think? Well, yeah, the way you explained it was the um, that you you know they, there's things you can't pass with a lot. It's just too much. You know, you start doing things like softening the skin or there's all these things that you can't pass through <clears throat> so they decided that they need to make a plug-in so you could actually pass that all the data and all the control over to a new artist if you wanted to um, so it's pretty cool um, to have that little node right there in, in Nuke like a little separate interface in the new controls window that uh, gave you all the power of the, um, the, the control of the film light base light and stuff but there was also something really clever they did that was... I, I just sat there going, this is so brilliant with the split screen. Why don't you explain what they were doing? It was like a, in, the, in the file, they stored the original... A reference to the original um, image that, was, that created it. So you might think that, well, it's obviously you could, you could make a LUT, right? If you want to get a look to a DOT station or you wanted to do something, you could do that. 
what these guys are doing is they're taking an OpenEXR file and they make the OpenEXR file contain not only the original picture but a version of the picture that is with the grade on it and then all the information for Baselight to do that including like windowing and all the regional stuff that can't be in a CML and can't be in a LUT because a 3D LUT can't have any regional stuff you can't put a grad on the sky for example you put a grad on the sky in Baseline and you were to create a LUT well it's just not going to be carried at all zero because it just doesn't work that way but if you did the grad on the sky um, and you save that as some kind of metadata file, well, that would be good. That would be that would be great, and you would be able to then load that file up, pretty much like loading any set setup. But of course, if you looked at the file in isolation, you'd have no idea what's going on um, because you'd just be able to set up. You'd load the setup, you'd bring in a different picture of say a, a woman, and suddenly the top of her head would be a different color, and it wouldn't be immediately obvious. And this was a, a, a very soft, you know, color grad to the sky because of course you're now looking at a completely different picture with this thing applied to it. So by storing the original file and a version of it with it on, you can quickly look at it, and I mean quickly, like in the browser of a Mac, when you just go into, you know, uh, look at the icons, the icon is a split screen between your original picture and your original picture with the uh, stuff applied on a diagonal white. So just at a glance, without touching any software, just on the pure icon, got an idea what's going on and it isn't some generic picture like the logo of the company it's the picture that you're dealing with and then the second thing about this this is awesome is that let's say you then take that to something that isn't a base site let's say you take it to a DaVinci and you say oh we did this on my laptop and I thought you guys were going to be grading in suite one but we're in suite two and I'm on the DaVinci well the DaVinci guy is going to look at you and say well there's nothing I can do with that you, you bug it because they could look at those two reference pictures and they could either eye match it or if it was uh, a simpler grade, you could try and do an automatic uh, LUT generation from A to B based on just doing uh, a comparison in, in software. So you think about it, it's kind of genius. And yes, an OpenEXR file is not small, but what do we care, right? Because it's only one frame. Uh, it's not like an entirely complicated um, setup. It just, it, I don't know, it struck me as being really, really simple and really helpful. And that same file that we're talking about there, the thing that I would use in Nuke, is exactly what you can send over to their uh, new uh, on-set box, which is not for grading so much as it is loading up and looking. So what would happen is you get a feed off the camera, it would go over to this box, and it would sit between the camera and the director's monitor. But again, you would say, well, why don't I just put a 3D LUT in there? And I would say again, well, you could, except for in that case, you wouldn't have the ability of, again, having regionalized correction. And also, this user interface does let you tweak it. So if you've got some looks set up that you thought were going to work, and then you get there on the day and you want them tweaked, you can actually punch up most of the controls. And having done those, of course, it's saved. It'll export the same file back again, and then when you walk back into post, you'll bring that in effectively as metadata, though it's metadata uh, with the two reference pictures. That makes sense. Yeah, I thought it was pretty cool. I would like to rattle on that DIT thing, though, because I... Keep getting. I keep every. There's a bunch of these boxes, a bunch of the stuff, and I, I just, I, I just don't know how much stuff like that. I guess more and more people are doing that stuff on set. I, I've always felt that you capture the digital negative, just like you would the capture the film, and that should all be, you know, other than getting something to make the monitor look like you want it to look. You shouldn't. I can't imagine spending the time on set to deal with this stuff. But maybe on a feature or a longer production. I don't know. I, I, I'm just confused by the whole... Uh, no, I mean, when I was doing a series in London, 
we had a DOT on set with a really elaborate setup, and then they would process stuff, we'd occasionally look at it, but also that would be fed into editorial, and then at the end of the day, we'd go and look at the dailies, which were sort of rough slam cuts of what we'd been doing during the day, to make sure we knew where we were before we broke the set or moved on to the next day's shooting, and we were shooting for weeks straight, and I would have hated to have no editorial to the end, so we had simultaneous editorial. And, yeah, I mean, it was completely relevant to give them something that looked vaguely good because no one cared. We just knew we'd always have the original R3D files. My right. rat hole on top of your rat hole? Yeah, rat hole, my rat hole. The, uh, checking out the vault in Codex. What did you think uh, of that? Yeah. Oh, I was astounded. And I, I thought it was going to be a really big, just a box... Uh, that you stick stuff in that's a big interface and it's got drives and then you're going to have to you know, a giant card reader like a whole bunch of yeah I mean I really didn't know what it was until I checked it out and seeing the first sort of prototypes of the show and getting the run through from, from Mark it was uh, really a, an impressive piece of kit and it's got a fantastic you know, touch screen interface I'd really love to see it be rented and be put on you know as a become a rental item if you don't necessarily have if you've got like the second AC being your DIT guy rather than a proper dedicated DIT guy and often those guys are off sometimes doing colorist work or sort of looking at looks you know and not necessarily doing data management but this with the touchscreen what was really interesting I mean first of all it's quite a modular system you can have it kitted out if it was say coming from a rental place you can have all these modular bays um, first of all it can be quite small you can make it as big or as small as you like it's kind of like stacks to make it uh, as, as big or as small depending on, on your usage but you can have it set up with all these little modular bays whether you want to have a, a red SS drive dock or a codex dock or a SYS card or uh, you know CF cards so whatever you've got if you've got say SYS cards from uh, from an F3 and um, codex off the back of an Alexa and a uh, CF cards from a 5D all on set at once. You can have the thing arrive on set with all the bays ready to go. And you can, but they can, interesting thing with all the touchscreen interface on it is that you can make it as complicated or as simple as you like. If you've got, if you know when it's turning up on set that, okay, editorial knows they need this certain spec, DHGNX, whatever, and we also obviously want to capture the raw, you can have, you can just kind of put it in not a dumb mode but you can set it to be more like simple simple on set mode where it only does exactly what you preset it to do and lock it and it's, it's only when you put data in it's going to automatically make a backup for this for editorial on this drive and a backup of the raw on this drive and it's going to you can just run from camera dock it walk away go keep shooting and when you come back and you know the light is green trap is clean you know that this card is clear, clear to grab it run with it, put it back in the camera and safely know that it's backed up and at the end of the day, producers and people aren't sort of hanging around waiting for uh, all the backups to be done because uh, it's been happening on the fly while everyone's been busy, you know, making art. Yeah. So it's really clever, I'd love to see it, you know, gain some traction. Yeah, Mark Dando's a nice guy too, isn't he? Yeah, well, that's their background, right? This is this is where they started and sort of onset data, so they really know, they really get it. Uh, sort of, you know, I was really impressed. It's one of those things you need to sort of, you know, get a hands-on and of the thing. I'd love. To, you know. Well, is there anything else that we wanted to discuss in terms of actual gear before I ask you to vote for your, you know, best thing at the show? Any other lights, cameras, accessories? Actually, you've got one, haven't you, Jeff? The um, yeah, absolutely. I, right before the show, I picked up a uh, small HD. 
um, DP4. I had to do a shoot the week before, and it was outside. And I did the test day looking at the back of the camera and realized that was just a tragedy. And a friend of mine, uh, it was just impossible. And a friend of mine loaned me a Zakudo, um, the viewfinder thing with the eyepiece. And uh, I liked it. It was very nice. I really did like it. Um, but based on some friend's recommendation, uh, two of which are in the car, on the small HD stuff, uh, and looking at their stuff, I, I like the way theirs flipped up a little better. So I bought the DP6 with that. Anyway, I immediately welcome to the world of hating the HDMI cables um, well, and how they attach to the camera. Yeah. And uh, I'd been looking at Sakudo's solution, which is kind of a metal plate to hold the, the thing in. So I walked by the small HD booth, and they had this heavy plastic piece that is molded to the shape. They're showing it with a 5D Mark II, and they're going to make one for the 5D Mark III eventually. Um, but it's a plastic molded piece that snaps firmly on the right side of the camera and screws down into the strap holder. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, and it, so it pinches in, and then it becomes a pressure thing. And the model they were, they were the, the showing did not have any replacement for that strap, so you lost that strap on that side. But they've gotten so much feedback, they are probably going to look into some way to add that. that. They didn't say that for sure, but they said they've gotten a lot of feedback on that. Anyway, then at the bottom, it's just a little loop where you put your, your HDMI cable in, and a little, a little slide piece that slides and locks it in place, and then... The demo they were doing on the booth was that they would then pick the camera up by the HDMI cable and swing it, shake it around, and it was firm. Well, um, they're even dropping the camera and just holding onto the cable, and it would fall three feet and snap, yeah. and it'd be And so it's it's really cool, and they're making a companion piece for the DP6 4 they were showing that fits on the bottom and protects the two HDMI ports there. So now you've got security on both ends of your HDMI cable, which I think is brilliant. Um, and the price for the part that fits on the camera was $49. Because, Chase, you lost the whole 5D Mark II in terms of usability. Yes, for very much more money changed hands than $49. Uh, nearly, almost, you know, I think it was 1800 bucks. I think, to replace it. Because the, the HDMI port is, like, integral to the whole... You're basically throwing away most of the circuitry for the entire camera. And it's not an easy fix. There's a lot of labour, and, yeah, so that sucks. Um... Yeah, I'm happily, happily. I do not. I do not go leave the, the, the house if I'm shooting anything with HDMI without some sort of port protection. Uh, what do you uh, use now? Do you have something? Uh, I use a. It's called. Uh, I want to say Lockport. Lockport. Okay. Um, Lockport.com, I think it is. But it, it is tied to. Uh, it works with a Red Rock Micro base plate, so it means that you ah. have to use that base plate. And if right. You, well, luckily, I did. You, I do always use that base plate, but. Uh, you know, this small HD thing is, it doesn't really add much bulk to the camera and it doesn't, no, it means you can use pretty much whatever other base plate yeah, you does, want to, or nothing. It does raise the bottom on the left side by right. a, a, the thickness of a little piece of plastic. Right. And they have had some feedback from people about that, but I looked at it and my tripod, my base plate would not interfere with it at all. It would not be off kilter. You'd have to have a pretty big base plate for that. And they're talking about making an option where you could put a same thickness thing across the whole bottom if you wanted to, to, to level that out. Yeah, HDMI is not really going away. But that's another, that's very yeah. clever for, you know, Black Magic to have a, such an unusual and almost, you could say, a bit more amateur kind of camera, yet not a single HDMI port on it. Oh, there wasn't one on that? No. Oh, interesting. All SDI. Yeah. So, uh. a standing ovation, throw flowers from the crowd I up just the wish stage. somebody... 
I just wish there could be a new, uh, some sort of better connector. I don't care if it's HDMI. I just think that there could be a camera side connector or a more professional connector created. I will say that, though, it's been, uh, I think I mentioned earlier, I would have preferred um, XLRs on that Black Magic than. Uh, yeah, it's quarter inch, wasn't it? No, it's not. It's the bigger headphone things. You know, not the little headphone things. Yeah, quarter inch, not yeah. not the not yeah, eighth guitar inch. Guitar ones. Yeah, guitar ones, right? Hey, um, we're getting close to stopping somewhere for lunch, so we're gonna. At least I hope we are. I certainly want to like a coffee. So we already passed Bun Boys. So. Bun Boys. We passed Bun Boy. Okay, well the that's, big thermometer, that's probably not a it big tip. Peggy Sue's diner. Yep. Get some alien jerky. And jerky, yeah. Uh, <laughs> So anyway, uh, so let's do our wrap up and uh, run around as to, or well, swing around the car as to which we think was the, the product of the show. I will go last because I will be. Are you getting mad? That I have nothing left. Um, so John, do you want to start? Because uh... yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it for one of you guys, but uh, <laughs> no one wants to pick the obvious. Um, I'm gonna say uh, the new Adobe Production Premium bundle. I think they did a really nice job with it. Um, you know, obviously the other one for me, and we're not doing two, is smoke on smoke. Um, but I think the advancements they made in the core architecture and After Effects, this uh, hash cache, or I guess Farking called it now, global performance cache. Um, this idea of having caches of all your After Effects projects, so the or layers and everything, so the interactivity becomes so much faster. They're basically staying, saving uncompressed RGB files on a really fast drive and I've used it with a solid state drive and it changes After Effects dramatically to have this going on in the background in your workflow. That and the combination of all the improvements they did in Premiere. Um, and I like, I want to just give them kudos, kudos for addressing the professional market in that software application after kind of being abandoned. A lot of people in Final Cut Pro uh, over the last couple of years it seems. Um, I'm actually starting on Monday. I'm giving myself a 30 to 60 day trial and doing the switch myself over to Premiere uh, as well. So that's, that's another reason. So that, that's my pick. Someone else can have spoken. <laughs> Jason, why don't you pick something in the camera department? The <laughs> yeah, I'll stay pretty clear. I mean, I won't go for the obvious, um, the, the crazy ass camera, but uh, obscure a little bit more and, and more of an epic sort of bent. I'm actually not necessarily going for a product, but an entire stand, because while I was there, I saw so gonna, many new cool things for, you're for go epic. you for those sunglasses with the camera in the No. <laughs> yeah. No, they were pretty cool. But um, uh, Action Products is a Swiss company who I've had on the show before, and we've seen a lot of cool gear from them. But they had like five or six prototypes on their bench, which I just, every single one of them, just bring it on. Examples of? One of the things that I was trying to find, or one of my quests this year was to get some really good wireless, um, stable wireless link to uh, Video Village uh, for eight, eight, on, on uh, SDI. I really wanted a good, strong, high-definition signal that I could rely on. I've spent far too many man-hours this year running backwards and forwards trying to sort out cables or trying to sort out a problem when I really all I want is plug something in at either end and let, let's let's shoot and, and just know that you know the clients and agency are seeing something so um, they have a really razor thin solution to click right on the back of the epic um, and it's you know, literally about the thin as your pinky and uh, to have uh, like maybe 100 200 feet transmission uh, with a receiver included that will do HDMI and SDI out at the receiver end 
very, very small, very light, and to do it for what they call sub $2,000, which I know that does seem like a, a lot of money, but I have not seen anything anywhere near that. All the solutions that are any halfway decent are five, six, eight, I saw 20, $40,000 solutions in my quest this year. Um, a lot of other cool little hand grips. One clever one was a way of ha turning the red moat into a hand grip, right? So at the moment, if you want to use the side handle to control the camera, uh, you are restricted to, if it's on your shoulder, reaching behind you and sort yeah, of... Yeah, which you actually had to do, right? Yeah, exactly, which I was trying to do, having, having done it for a while. Uh, this actually takes the red mode and adds it to a handle, which is a little bit weirder than... It is weird to look at, but as soon as you pick it up, your thumb is right there by the whole jog, the, the jog joy pad wheel thing, and right below it is the roll, the stop-start. So you can actually put that at the end of a, you know, handheld handles, and be able to control the camera and roll and cut and not have to uh, reach behind you with some sort of weird sort of trying to back, scratch the back of your back of your neck sort of maneuver. Alrighty. Yeah. Now, Mr. Hizo, was your favourite cocktail of the uh, NAB? I'm um, sorry, product. Oh, it's cocktail. That's a tough one. Um, sadly, not as much time for cocktails as uh, we like. We like in normal life when we are trade shows. Um, I have to. Plumb line on the right. I don't, I don't know if it qualifies. I don't know if I can. What I'd like to say is, I think the the thing that made me go wow was that Adobe thing we started the thing with the editing software that their tech the tech preview. Uh, the cloud thing that yeah. is valid. I really I'm hesitant to say it because it's not out. It's not even released. It's not even promised. It's just a tech demo. Um, but it really was the kind of thing we sat there going, if they pull this off and they do it right. It's totally different than what we're used to. I mean, you might have to have a server in your location to handle the footage, and it might be just fine. I don't know how they're going to do it, but the demo I saw made me think of new ideas and new ways of thinking and new ways of working, and and uh, excited me in a, in a different, you know, was it, was, it was interesting. I just thought it, I thought it was really cool. And then, you know, i, I got to say the other thing. There's some companies right now that are just kicking it on every level, and that would be... Adobe, and that would be. Uh, I think the Foundry. Foundry. Oh yeah, Hero. I mean, I did some Hero demos, so I'm a little biased, but. I, mean, I think Mari's really good. Yeah, I mean, everything they're doing. Uh, Black Magic. I think that's another yeah. company. It's just. I mean, they bought Terranex and dropped the price from what was it, ninety thousand dollars to like seventy thousand for this particular bottle in, in November, December last year. They bought it re-engineered it. It's now either two thousand or three thousand dollars for the stereo version, and it's half the weight. Yeah, it's like, so they're kicking it. I think Autodesk is kicking it. I mean, I think they're, I think this smoke move is a real disruptive, um, again, a, a, a price point that makes you go, wow, this really opens it up to a whole different market and um, puts it accessible. And, and the, the, the redesign is really focused on making it accessible. So, I mean, I think just companies are really, there seems to be some real bold and smart moves going. I don't know, I, I, that's too many. That didn't give you one, I'm sorry. It's like, can I throw in the small HD? I wanted to do four. <laughs> can we go back? I've got another couple. Yeah, I think we're going to give you the Adobe one. Okay, if that one qualifies, yeah, then I'll take the Adobe one. There you go. So, obviously, I'm going to pick smoke on Mac. Everyone's been teasing about this, but I just yeah. think it's an awesome product. It it's exactly what I want. I, I literally wish I could say this was me being you know, community-focused, and I think it will find an audience. I don't give a... 
I, I care about you guys a lot. I actually just personally want it, um, and I personally want it now, and I think it's going to be great. I want to be able to edit on my laptop and do stuff, and I like Flame, and I like uh, and have always liked uh, working that way. I'm not in any way frightened of having effects up. In fact, it used to bug me in Final Cut that I barely go so far and then jump out again. Uh, sorry, go so far in Final Cut, yeah, and then jump to something else. And it was quite frankly really a pain to jump from Final Cut to my flame because I couldn't even read the codex and I have to export clips and then run them out as single frame sequences and then load those. And there was read-write problems with permissions on folders even. It was just a pain. Um, Spoke on Mac, I, I think it's going to be awesome. And I also think it signals that this, the 20th anniversary of Flame, is not... Know, flame in its twilight years moving away because there's no reason why if they've gone to this much trouble on smoke they can't do something similar with I, Flame. I can't believe with the way Philippe talked in that FX Guy TV interview about merging the stuff together that they would just abandon that now, right? Yeah. It just, you know, it's I, just, it, it's just, it'd be shocking to me if they did. And you know what? I mean, uh, it's almost like Apple's given them a gift, a, a yeah. promise of, uh, you know, more market. And they don't need to sell as many as Final Cut. Remember how many Final Cut users there were in the world? It was like astronomical, right? They just need a small, small fraction of that to be really, really happy um, at Autodesk. And, you know, I've got friends at Autodesk, I know, and obviously I've used product for ages, but seriously, guys, when you like, play with this thing, it, it looks just normal. You know, it no longer feels like uh, it's somebody coming up with a... You know, because every once in a while somebody does come up with a better mousetrap, but quite often if we just... That if they're an island, it's just not worth learning the mousetrap. And some of the smoke stuff really felt like that. It was the editing. I can see why they were doing it. Obviously, I've used it for years, I know. But I can see other people look at it and their eyes, like Jason with glass, you know, what the hell am I looking at? I don't even understand how this is organized. Never had that with Flame because of the, the reels. But that freeform desktop stuff just maybe wasn't working with some people. Anyway, that's mine. That's smoke. Yeah, that's a good thing. thing. I thought you were going to pick something else. I thought you were going to pick that. That I.O. card thing that you guys were all talking about, the let's turn our old computer into, you know... Um, actually, I do think that was, that's really awesome. And uh, But we discussed that a lot, I think, in the live show. Yes. And uh, if you haven't, you know what Joseph's referring to, check out the live show. I gave you that one for your birthday, my friend. Happy birthday. Thank yes, you. Well, Much appreciate it. <laughs> and, and quite frankly... Hey, did you also notice they didn't call it smoke on that, by the way? They just called it smoke. smoke. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, you know the other thing that was awesome, just rat-holing, and you mentioned my birthday, we went to see oh. Madness on the Saturday night before uh, Vegas, and some of you will know that I am a bit of a fan of early English uh, ska, um, and I got in one week to see the specials in Sydney and Madness in Vegas, and we were down the front uh, just totally having an awesome time. It was a terrific concert, and... and so much fun. Yeah. You guys had fun, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was brilliant. And a funny thing happened at the end of it, I'm going to about. So, so, if you know the band, there's seven guys in the band, and there are effectively two singers up the front. It's an all-guy band. Um, and the main singer is a guy called Suggs. There's the other guy is a guy called Chaz, and he's just a funny guy. And at the end of the concert, they didn't bring up the house lights, so we had an encore. But you know when the house lights don't come out, everyone keeps trying to chant again. I'm expecting more to come on. And the reason the House of Blues didn't do that because they wanted to hang around and uh, ask to buy drinks and stay. And of course, everyone had expected the band to come back, so there was this kind of awkward bit where we're chatting and nothing's happening. And so Chaz decides he'll go back on stage and tell us all to piss off and go. The trouble was, he was actually naked at that time. He had a towel around him because he was obviously getting changed. 
But he decided to come in anyway with a towel around him. He hadn't quite anticipated that Lee, the saxophone player, would run across the stage and nick his towel. And I have to admit, that's the only time in the whole concert I didn't appreciate being down the front. <laughs> um, that but, was a yeah, bit up close. Awesome, yeah. awesome night, guys. That was a great night. It was uh, really the only off night we had. And uh, it was nice to have just it being such a, a fun night. Well, that's it. Thank you so much for taking the trip to us from uh, Nevada to Los Angeles. Um, and thanks to our team uh, who worked to aren't with us in the car. It was a great group of guys and uh, we work with them all the time, but they really excelled themselves. And I'm sure everyone agree with me that just terrific work from uh, Matt and Ryan and Todd, who came uh, in uh, to help us out. Yep. Uh, it's just a rock star. Really, really great. Anything else you guys want to say? No, no. No, I'm done. Summed it up perfectly. Until well, next time, guys. Thanks so much. See ya. Bye. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.